Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast, and business in the community is the Prince of Wales's responsible business network. The podcast is powered by Fujitsu, and it's supported by McCann. My first guest today is Olivia Kramer. She is a deal crafter at The Craftery. Deal crafter means investor, really, and The Craftery describes itself as the home of challenger brands. My second guest is Greg Jackson. He is the CEO and founder of Octopus Energy. Just over four years ago, Octopus Energy didn't exist, and yet today it has over 1.3 million customers. It'll do a billion pounds in revenue this year and is going global. We will talk about what it means to be a challenger brand. We'll talk about what very large corporates can learn from these disruptors and rebels. And we'll talk about the answer to a very big question about how society might change over the next 10 years and what business can do to keep up. I really enjoyed this conversation. Let's get to it. Welcome, Olivia. Welcome, Greg. Hello. Hi. Now, Greg, if I can start with you. Welcome to The Lens. I want to hear all about Octopus because, frankly, four years ago, it hadn't even come into existence and today it is this thriving, hugely fast-paced company. So we're going to go on the whistle-stop journey. But let me take you back, Greg Jackson, your first ever job. Where did it start for you? I, I guess, actually, for me, it was a milk round. I was probably about 13 years old and um, getting up at and a half, five, six o'clock every morning to do an hour and a half of running, carrying kilos and kilos of milk at full pace in the freezing cold through a northeastern town. And I think that's where... Certainly, I discovered uh, the work ethic. Yeah, and, and you are to this day an absolute grafter. You, put, you absolutely put in the hours. Yeah, look, I, I'm very fortunate because uh, I think there's loads of research that says, for example, stress is associated with lack of control. CEOs have probably got more control than most people in a company. And therefore, for many of us, it's you know, a job that has less stress than you'd imagine and more joy. So spending time on it is honestly a passion. Yeah, and you, re- you really do enjoy it. So, so from the milk round, uh, somehow you find yourself reading economics at Cambridge University and then off on quite an adventure, it seems to me, across marketing, technology, software. So all those points, not yet an entrepreneur yeah. in a sense. But just give us a sense, reflecting on that, what most of all in those early years of your professional journey, what most shaped you, do you think? Also, while I was at school, I wrote video games and I learned to write um, a machine code. Uh, and uh, actually, between school and A levels, I spent a year writing video games. Well, not everyone's doing that at school. Were you self taught? Were you going on certain courses? Yeah, self taught. And I think um, back then, you know, I was part of that generation that grew up in the UK with the Sinclair Spectrum, the US with the Commodore 64, that learned coding. Um, and uh, I think that was almost partly responsible for an enormous number of businesses now where founders uh, cut their teeth back on those early home computers. Yeah, so you were creating even back then. So off to university, the corporate traditional career, to what extent did that beckon and to what extent were you already thinking, I'm going to do things a bit differently? Yeah, it's interesting how short-term we all are. Uh, So when I was at university, you know, I was quite focused on I need to get a job and earn some money. But I also knew that sooner or later I was going to do my own thing. And a company like Procter & Gamble had got a great graduate training program. I thought it would be a good place just to learn the basics of business. And so it proved to be. Interestingly, though, you know, one of the things I think was it becomes very addictive. 
it's very easy to worry about the next promotion, what your colleagues think of you, uh, the next pay rise, and to get, end up with something that should have been a very t- short-term job becoming a career. And I was determined, you know, not to let that happen. And it was hard. Yeah, it's tough to tough to break out. So the seed of entrepreneurship always uh, always there, or was it a certain opportunity that presented itself? It was always going to happen. So an opportunity presented itself, which was actually an application for a job to run a small manufacturing company that had just been bought from a corporate by a couple of McKinsey consultants who themselves were being entrepreneurial. And I think that was kind of my move into the entrepreneurial fold. Uh, but when I say it was always there, I think, um, you know, one of my kind of core definitions is irreverence. And it's hard to craft a corporate career when you are positive but irreverent. Yeah, and so when you say irreverence, it's a wonderful word. What do you, what do you mean by that word? How does it express itself? It means a relative lack of respect for authority, mm. not as a religion, but just not believing that authority is right just because it's authority. It's you should be able to challenge it. And if it's right, great. But if it's wrong, do something about it. It's really hard to do that in a corporate pyramid. Um, uh, uh, people who do that often become a sort of a bit of a sideline. Whereas as an entrepreneur, that's how you drive success, by looking at everything that people say is true and questioning it till you find alternative paths. Yeah, and yet you still have people you have to respect and, and, and serve, including be they investors or customers. So how irreverent can you be with those stakeholders? I think with every one of them, what you're doing is questioning the received wisdom in order to better serve them. So, you know, I serve my investors better, I hope, because we don't take as a given the rules, uh, the beliefs about markets like the one we're in. That's how we create value. And we serve customers better by saying, look, loads of companies say they serve customers and they create enormous machines for doing so. And yet when you look at the trust pilot ratings or speak to customers, it doesn't seem to work very well. Right. So I think finding, you know, saying, look, you may be doing everything that you believe is right to achieve this, but it's not achieving it. Let's look at doing it differently. Got it. So give us a snapshot. Four years ago, Octopus Energy is started. Give us a snapshot of the business today. You are in over a million homes. Give yeah, us a sense. So we've got 1.3 million households in the UK um, as customers. Uh, so our revenue is, uh, you know, something that still makes us slightly mind-boggling, which is, I think, one, £1.4 billion pounds and, and rising at the equivalent of around £100 million a month, I guess. Um, we're in three countries. We're in the UK, Germany and Australia. And we're doing it off a technology platform that we have built really as a sort of first global platform to enable the affordable green energy revolution in many countries. Right. And I should be clearer about this, shouldn't I? Because it is 100% green. And just remind our listener what that means uh, in practice, what the customer is actually buying into. Uh, today, what it means is that as many electrons as our customers take from the grid, we pour in that number of green electrons. That's ones generated by you know, primarily wind and solar, but also things like hydro and anaerobic digestion. But much more important really is you know, the fossil fuel industry, the traditional energy companies, made money by causing climate change. And our question continually is, how do we create a business that makes money by fighting climate change? Um, and the system we have today, the, the grid in the UK and indeed in other developed nations, essentially is designed around coal. Uh, And so we see the characteristics of wind and solar as a problem. You know, we think the fact that they're intermittent and uh, not always predictable 
And when you say we see the characteristics, you mean society tends society. to see. I'm so sorry. We at Octopus do not see that. <laughs> no, right? Let's so, be clear. Let's be clear. Yeah. So, so traditional energy industry, governments and, and um, companies have seen uh, the problems of renewable generation without embracing the incredible benefits. You know, look, when the wind blows and the sun shines, we have endless, zero marginal cost, zero carbon electrons. So if we re-engineer the way we use electricity and energy to capitalise on that, instead of seeing renewables as a problem, and people say, how are we going to pay for this? I'm like, how are we going to get to this wonderful, clean future of zero marginal cost electrons? Right, so let me stop you there, because I just want to clear something up. You know, when the wind blows and when the sun shines, we don't have to have had a rainy milk round in the northeast to realise that ain't always the case. So just explain for me in simple terms how you cover those gaps and continue to supply so the lights don't go off. So the other half of um, moving to a renewable energy system everywhere uh, are electrifying things like transport. So moving from, you know, uh, petrol and diesel to electric cars. When you do that, you're doubling the consumption of a typical household of electricity. But you've also got a store that can hold, you know, maybe a week's worth of electricity, the battery in the car. So now we can fill that battery at times when electrons, green electrons, are in abundance. Uh, So the green energy revolution requires us to think about both generation and consumption and how we bring them together. But if we start thinking like that, actually those gaps, you know, do we fill them just by discharging our batteries? Uh, do we you know, slightly change our habits? In the UK, there's a massive demand for electricity between 4pm and 7pm. If you run your dishwasher at 7.30, it's a massive difference versus running at 6 yeah, and this, this raises, doesn't it, this wider challenge of how we change the way customers behave. Is that someone else's job or does that fall into Octopus's remit too? That's what we exist for. The only way we can drive the energy green energy revolution is by stopping thinking of energy companies as energy suppliers. Start thinking of them as a company whose job it is to do what retailers do in other sectors, embracing consumers to find better solutions for them and driving costs out of the supply chain. Right, and just to be clear, they are changing their behaviour by switching to Octopus. I wanted to know whether you feel you can tell them when to pop their dishwasher on or have you gone too far? We've got already something like 10,000 customers who pay a different price for their electricity depending on the time of day they're doing it, depending on how green the grid is. There's a great correlation with that. So uh, whether that be people in electric vehicles that are charging them uh, off-peak times, or people who are shifting their water heating and washing machines. You don't have to get up at 4 in the morning. You know, it could be 7.30 in the evening, it could be midday, and it can be automated. It just happens at the right time. Got it. Now, Greg, it strikes me that when you fulfil the potential of Octopus, you're going to make a huge amount of money and you're going to make a difference. So my question is, what fundamentally drives you? The thing that's driven me since I was at university, I used to wear a T-shirt with a picture of a car with fumes out the back and a big red cross over it. Uh, when I was... Uh, saying not saying that. Yeah, look, we have to stop polluting the planet. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I stood for election. I cared about making change for the better. But what happened um, was I lost my 23 votes. And uh, there were three recounts. And at the end of Is it... Is this a student election, not no, local, this, local, yeah, this is local politics? Yeah, local politics. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but at the end of it, I realised that those 23 votes were the difference between making a big difference and having zero impact. And that's when I realised that actually what business let me do was simply the bigger we get, the more impact we make. And that's when I realised that for me personally, the path to delivering 
helping deliver the world I believe in was through business, because that way uh, every every customer we win, we're driving the change that I think we need. Perfect. That is a perfect point at which to bring in Olivia. Olivia Kramer, welcome to The Lens. Hi. Every rebel needs a quarterback. What a wonderful analogy that is. And that's not my words. That is the words of the craftery, because you are the deal makers, you are the investors, and you're the investors in the disruptors, in the rebels. How, how do you describe what you do? It says deal craft, but just give us a sense of it. So I'm on our deal team and we are looking to find challenger brands around the world and invest in them and help them grow so they can have a bigger impact as fast as possible. Great. So I'm holding that phrase in my mind of challenger brands, but I need to know more uh, about Olivia Kramer. So take us back. How did you get started? Um, so my first job was actually selling Paddington Bears in Paddington Station. Really? Yes. So slightly less physical than you, Greg, but very cold. And I assume yours was too. <laughs> was it, you know, I didn't think we were going to start there at all because, of course, <laughs> you don't you don't have a strong British accent. So just give us a sense a bit about your roots because I know there was some time um, in, in North America. So I grew up in the US and I moved here when I was eight and yep. the accent has stuck with me. Gosh, no, with passport. Okay, so, so when yeah. I see in your history um, the LSE, yep. your student years, Bank of America, all based here. Yes, exactly. Except so I, I started my career at Bank of America, Maryland, in their UK investment banking team. And um, I then actually took a gap year, a post-banking gap year, where I moved to Lebanon Gosh. for a year. Tell me more. That's um, relatively unusual. Slightly quirky, very confusing to my colleagues at the time. So I moved to learn Arabic and to work for an NGO. So who or what gave you that idea? It's brilliant. So it's interesting because pe- I've had a sort of a long interest in the Middle East and people are always confused why. But I think it's a function of sort of my generation having been impacted politically by the war in Iraq um, and seeing the consequences of that. And so I've always been con- interested in the Middle East. And so... I moved to Beirut to learn Arabic. And having had such an extraordinary year, how challenging was it to re-engage with the world of work, professional career? So I actually work for an NGO that helps scale-ups in the developing world, so um, called Endeavour. Now, Endeavour, I think Reid Hoffman might have been involved as a Yeah, so he's he's on the board of Endeavour, and so they basically help businesses from a venture knowledge standpoint. So it's not... Venture capital, they look for businesses with sort of more than a million dollars in revenue, and their view is to try and help businesses grow. Um, So they started in the developing world. They're now in the U.S., and so I work for them. And that was my segue into venture capital. Now, without putting words in your mouth, it sounds like the seeds of business and impact are already being sown together at that stage. Is, is, Is that exaggerating how it was happening? Because clearly you come out with a mission to support companies that make a difference. So exactly. So their view is that um, businesses at this stage are the ones that are the most additive in terms of job creation and sort of overall economic growth. And so I sort of left banking and wasn't sure how finance could make an impact. And working at Endeavor showed me that actually working with businesses at this stage was a really great way to do that, sort of to help these businesses grow job creation and sort of the multiplier effect. You help a business grow, employees from that business might go on and start another business, and it has an overall impact on sort of the ecosystem when it comes to entrepreneurship. Right. So what about this strange ingredient in the mix, the entrepreneur? Because they're nightmares, aren't they? We've got one here. I mean, I mean, Greg Jackson, the archetypal entrepreneur, unpredictable, 
rebellious. Greg, I'm wondering if you're going to nod at this. I'm winding him up. Um, you know, the rebellious... <clears throat> We I love mean, the rebels. I've actually only ever had great experiences with entrepreneurs, and maybe I've been fortunate. Or we, uh, but I mean, we're in a position where we try to work with entrepreneurs we love and who you have like, a. You like being able to predict things, don't you? Business plans, delivering, you know, which I'm sure Greg does in his own ways, but this unpredictability, I don't see how that bodes well for an investor. Well, that's the one thing we've learned that we can't predict anything. So, I mean, we tried to do the best we can. We always take the entrepreneur's sort of business plan and we edit it, we sensitize it, and we create our own view of what we think is going to happen. But, yeah, we can't predict the future. We have a view, but we can't predict it. Well, it sounds very collaborative. I think that's very refreshing. You talk about At The Craftery being the home of challenger brands. And that, that to me, is a really exciting phrase. And I just wonder what it means uh, for you. So there's lots of different views on challenger brands. You can see it as a sort of more general, we're looking to challenge the incumbents. But the way we think about it is businesses that have a mission or a cause behind them. And so sort of not just in terms of, you can challenge the sort of the incumbents in terms of the way you think about branding, the way you think about media, the way you think about retail distribution. But the way we think about it is a business has to have a mission or a cause for us to think of it as a challenger. And we've identified sort of five causes that we think are really pertinent to the world. So one of which is prospering sustainably. There's one about delivering good health. There's one about democratizing access. There's one about championing self-esteem. And there's one about progressing society. But we think that sort of cool brands come and go and there can be sort of cool brands that get scale, but then they lose the coolness. So you need something, a mission to bind the consumer to the business in the long term. And what you've done, and we're talking about the craftery here, if a listener wants to um, check it out, but you've focused, haven't you, on what you call CPG, consumer packaged goods. So for example... So uh, beauty is a a classic CPG category, food and beverage. So the way we think about it is if you can make these small differences across huge volumes, that's how you can have a a sort of a really, truly big impact. Very, very interesting. So on that, um, again, taken from the craftery itself, we have grown tired of phony brands that waste our time and the planet's resources. See, Greg's going to nick that one. Don't worry about that. Phony brands. What do you mean? Um, I think there's a lot of brands that sort of push consumption for consumption's sake. Um, I think fast fashion is a classic example of that. And actually, fast fashion is one of the most polluting industries. And there are ones where they're sort of just forcing the consumer to demand this newness. And we see that as phony because they're not actually tapping into a genuine need from the consumer. Interesting. So let's zoom in. One investment that you're proud of? that kind of sums this up. Oh, it's like having to choose, I guess, one of yeah, your children. Child, yeah. <laughs> um, I really love our investment in Tomboy X, which is a gender non-binary underwear company based in Seattle. Tomboy X. So yes. this is underwear? For... So underwear, and it's for everyone, for all humans. It was set up by a couple called Fran and Naomi. They're um, lesbians. They got married a couple of years ago, and they basically felt there was no underbrand that kind of spoke to them, and they identify as tomboys. So they started with this hero product, which is a sort of a boxer brief, um, and it's kind of grown from there. Excellent. And so you have invested in them? So we've, yep. And and it sounds to me like one of the ways that a company like that can change the world is by changing the way people think about the world and about each other. So exactly. So it fits into a number of causes. Um, So one of them is about um, 
as I said, progressing society. And so 87% of their customers identify as LGBTQ. And I mean, the brand really sort of leans into that. Their depiction of people in advertising um, is very much sort of geared towards LGBTQ. They have a trans collection. And we see that as important in a world where actually LGBTQ figures don't actually get a lot of coverage in the media. And actually, this is a problem. It's not truly inclusive. And it sort of creates this environment where we see as anything other than heterosexual as abnormal. Absolutely. And there's a long, long history in advertising of exactly those um, exactly those images. Um, I guess a criticism of investors is, well, Olivia, purpose is everywhere. <laughs> it's getting name dropped. We hear about purpose washing, greenwashing, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes down to it, in the review with the entrepreneur, you only really care about the money. Isn't that right? You know what? So I was actually... I mean, when I first heard about the craftery, I, I wondered how true they would be to the mission and we would be. And I, I never cease to be shocked about how stringent we are on looking for comp- for businesses with a cause. And so we actually have these incredibly passionate debates um, on whether these companies are truly cause-driven. And often it's actually not black and white because you can have a business. We have an investment in a business called The Knot Company, which creates vegan products. But in their packaging, they use some plastic. So to what extent can you have one cause, but it is offset by another one? And those are actually really difficult debates. But we try and look on it at an overall sort of net basis. But we we think investing in challenger brands not only makes good sense for the planet, but also makes good sense for investors. Right. So it strikes me then you have an influencing ability on these entrepreneurs as well. And I wanted to explore, Greg, any tension, if that's not too uh, sensitive, um, between investors and entrepreneurs who want to change the world. How do you see it? Listening to this, there's about 27 notes I've made because I agree with everything uh, that you're saying. And I think, uh, first of all, VCs in particular, venture capital backers, are people who take a long-term view, who look at the fundamentals and who are both creative and patient, or at least very comfortable with creativity. And um, I think that may, different categories of investor behave differently. We're backed by Octopus, which is, among other things, it's a leading venture capitalist in the UK. By the way, they also have a very large renewables fund. But I'd met Octopus several times before as an angel investor. And what had always impressed me was their desire to look for what value are you really creating for customers, for society? And I think in the long run, in the long run, returns accrue to the fundamental value creation. Are you doing something that people will in the long run want? And if you are, in the long run, that creates value for investors. But it's not short-termist. And I think that's the big... When I meet the people that run the public energy companies, the ones that are listed, they've got quarterly targets they have to hit or their investors um, you know, very quickly cease backing them. And it means they can't invest for the future. It means that they are slaves to a dividend. And in a sense, uh, you know, some of those non-creative public market utility-style investors are bleeding the very companies that they own dry. And instead of that, great, and the word investment... The word investment says we are putting something in here to make it bigger. And so I think VCs and and a lot of other creative investor types really are uh, incredibly aligned with what the entrepreneur wants to achieve. And I can sense that you are on the same wavelength. This is a good thing. My question is, Greg, what would you ask Olivia based on what you've heard already? And, of course, Olivia, for Greg. I'd actually love to get more insight 
from Olivia about the way that they view the next 10 or 20 years of societal development. Because essentially, what we're, if we're taking long-term views, we have to be building today companies which are going to be uh, positive parts of that future world. Right. You've got to love a small and specific question. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't even know where to begin with that. I think one of the trends that we're really looking at um, is this one of sort of not asset ownership. And so these platforms that allow people to rent or recycle these the products they buy. Because consumption inherently, it's difficult to make it sustainable. So when we look at these companies, we wonder to what extent is the world going to look like when I buy a dress, but then if I can lend it to someone else or I can rent it out or I can actually, if you look at some of the businesses in the U.S. or Outfitters is doing it, where you just have a subscription model. Slightly dif- more difficult for underwear. Yep. Um, yeah, and we've seen Rent the Runway, for example, yeah, exactly. billion-dollar company, and I'm appalled by the levels of food wastage in all around the world, especially in the UK. So more thoughtful entrepreneurs springing up uh, in, in service of all of these uh, challenges. I wonder how you answer that question, Greg, before uh, Olivia fires one at you. I find it very interesting that the business you chose uh, was Tomboy X, and you talked about the changing nature, almost of, of the way people view themselves and each other over the next decade or two. And I think really that there's a quest there for the true authenticity of people being themselves. Um, and so uh, what I found really interesting is you're talking then uh, again about the fundamental changes in the way that people live and consume. So I'm so sorry. Did you ask me to ask a question? No, no, no. I do want your question, but, <laughs> cool. but, but you are already in the throes of doing exactly what I hoped, which is answering your own question about the next 10 years. Oh, yeah, sorry. But I think part of it is saying, let's start accepting people the way they are and then make the world work better for that. So a great example for me would be uh, you talked about food waste. Right? We're not getting very good at dealing with food waste. If anything, we create more of it. So why don't we make food that's less impactful in its production so that when we do waste it, it's less of an issue? Uh, a great example for me is vertical farming, indoor farming. Uh, you know, uh, when we grow crops in buildings close to the places we consume it, we massively reduce food miles. We don't need pesticides. Uh, we don't need much in the way of fertilizers. Uh, we can run several crops on a diurnal cycle that's created for um, the best growth patterns. And if we do that using a renewable energy and recycling the water, there's barely any input. So if we eat it, we're eating great food. And if we waste it, we're not wasting anywhere near the amount we are today. Completely. Now, Olivia, a question for Greg. Okay, I'm going to go for the specific. So outside of how you power your own home and presumably your own car, how have you made your life more sustainable? And I'm looking for tips. This is very selfish, this question. (laughs) Yeah, and, and I have to be candid. As I said there, I think we have to start accepting there are many ways in which we lead our lives that we can improve. But as humans, we often fail to do so. So the most important thing, I think, is continuing to invest in creating ways of living that don't force us to compromise, but massively reduce our impact on the planet. Uh, So the first thing is I'm kind of ducking the question. Um, (laughs) I try to cycle more. Uh, You know, I love cycling. But again, it's one way you wake up in the morning, you feel groggy. And, um, you know, you kind of, the bike doesn't look as appealing. If only we could legalise electric scooters in the UK. So instead of moving a two and a half tonne or three and a half tonne electric car, you're moving a 100 kilo or 25 kilo electric scooter. 
so I think ways of embracing the way we really are and then reducing our impact on the environment are huge. But I think in, in the world of gender and diversity, I think I've um, had several awakenings over the last decade uh, that have really um, opened my eyes to things that I was really not aware of, uh, the extent to which everyone has the same uh, ambition for themselves. Or they have the, the, certainly the potential, the same ambition for themselves uh, and, and for their friends, family and loved ones. Uh, the extent to which um, it's so important to let people be themselves. You know, I often say in our company now, you, you cannot hang your personality up at the door and be who the company wants you to be. You have to be yourself. Um, and uh, I think then understanding what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes is something we can never really do, but we can try hard and we can aspire to it. And it is fascinating walking into Octopus HQ, it is like a wall of energy. It's such an interesting vibe. I encourage you uh, to do it, Olivia. You're, you're practically, I'm going to need an invite now. You're practically neighbours. <laughs> um, give me a sense of whether a lot of people listen to The Lens who are from much, much larger companies. Is there anything that very large corporations can learn from the best challenger brands? Olivia, what comes to Ooh, your mind? Um, or do they just say, look, they're doing their thing. They're the punks. We can't touch it. We can't learn. Well, I mean, I think for CPG... Um, so this is your consumer packaged goods? Yeah. Um, I guess it's potentially one is about listening to feedback and sort of really having that connection with the customer, which is, I think, where a lot of the incumbents have got lost because through sort of retail distribution, they don't end up owning that relationship with the customer. And then it's hard to really understand how your customer feels about the product. And I think engaging with a customer in that way can be really valuable. And there's a lot of companies that I particularly love that actually bring the customer into the product development journey. So Glossier is the um, American makeup and skincare brand. And they have had a great community that the company started with a blog, where they really gathered women's feedback on the kind of products they needed. Um, and this ended up completely defining their product development strategy and has ended up causing the company to grow incredibly quickly. So take us into this because, Greg, you are, I hope you don't mind me saying, borderline obsessed with your customers, and rightly so. You are a five-star on Trustpilot after 15,500 reviews. What's the secret of that? Actually, what Olivia was saying there about listening to customers is utterly critical. I did my first four years of career working at a CPG company, and we learned how to do advertising that worked. Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble. But actually, when we tried to use the same techniques in this company, very quickly I realised that what PNG had taught us to do was to batter consumers around the head with our message. And instead, our job was to listen to customers. And whether that be on social media or the fact that I published my email address or that our team are talking to thousands of customers every day, getting the feedback from every interaction and uh, mainlining it into the business at speed and acting upon that is critical. So, for example, every function in our business, technology, marketing communications, are connected directly with the people speaking to customers, and they speak to customers themselves. So what we create is based continually upon the feedback from customers, not upon what we wish customers actually thought. And I guess my follow-up to that, Greg, is that you, the CEO, the founder, remain very, very linked to, this, to these interactions, don't you? You haven't devolved it to your head of marketing or customer services. So what I want to know is why you continue to answer so many emails personally. Or tell, tell us if that's true. Well, I mean, first of all, I share it with those guys. So our marketing director, she probably replies to 
20 to 50 customers a day. Our operations director who looks after customer operations probably does more than that, and I do somewhere in that region. Even our CFO, so when we send out a price rise, his name is at the bottom of the email, and customers respond to it. It does it a repliable email. It goes to him. And this idea that we take total responsibility for our decisions, first of all, it acts as a totem to the whole company, that when we say we care about customers, we're not just saying it. Secondly, loads of companies say, look, we're customer-centric, and then they park customer services out in a business park um, where the CEO goes for half a day, once every two years, to listen to some calls, and they think they know the business. But if you look at, for example, about a decade ago, UK retailers were were world-renowned for how good they were. And the CEOs would be visiting stores every day. And that's the only way you can see how your people are really sort of experiencing the job and how your customer experience, your people and your company. And we're trying to recreate that in the modern world. And with the amount of customer feedback we get, every company gets. If you listen to it, actually, I think we can be, you know, better than companies have ever been. So fascinating. So so you're not in a habit probably of helping the big six, but if you were to give them a piece of advice of something they can learn from you and the best challenger brands in the world. What would you say? I would say stop doubling down on doing the wrong thing and be authentic. So a lot of the time companies will say, you know, for example, we wish customers would engage and get a better deal from us because their default deals are so bad. It's just not true. They're making money off those bad deals. So what I would say to them is take the incredible resources you've got, your great people, actually established, if not always loved brands, your balance sheets, and your massive customer base, and reorient it towards a much more authentic model. And I think the race will be between the companies, the, the fastest growing challenges to get to scale quickly, and the most uh, sort of innovative or authentic of the large enterprises that will reform quickly. Excellent. And Olivia, when you're coaching these amazing founders, you know, you're the quarterback um, uh, and, and they're the rebel. What can they learn from some of the biggest, most successful companies on the planet? Because on the one hand, you are railing against the corporate, you're the counter-corporate. They one day will be the size of these corporates. What do they need to bear in mind from you? So we actually encourage them not to think like a corporate because our view is just that you're never going to beat the incumbents by playing like them. So we try and actually reject that thinking as much as possible. And I think there's always, especially with businesses that have a sort of a sustainable angle or an impact, there's a worry that at some point the company or the founder might feel pressured to put growth or margin ahead of their cause. And sort of I see that as being as Greg mentioned, sort of the kind of thing that classic sort of stock market investors look for. So we encourage them to remain true to their cause, but not to risk cause for growth and to not think like the incumbents. So this is very unusual. We've quite anti-traditional VC in that sense. We try. OK, so quick fire. Um, always want to know, every guest on the lens I ask, who you'd most like to meet for coffee and they have to be... Uh, alive on the planet today. Olivia, who do you mean? It's not business related, but I'm going to choose Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah, so the South African TV anchor. Have I got the right person? Yes, the host of The Daily Show, who I just, I mean, I'm going to choose 30 minutes of fun and sort of a very amusing conversation. Yeah, very high paced, brilliant. Great choice. Right, great. Who do you sit down with? I wish I was allowed to choose someone who didn't exist yet because I really want to meet the last living human before AI uh, eliminates us all. 
but if you force me... Um, <laughs> well, I'll... hang on, that's a sidebar. <laughs> that's a whole other episode on a cheery note, so let's come back uh, to that. But limiting you, as I must, to seven-odd billion people? Yeah, so uh, it may not be um, as creative as you'd expect. I would just love to meet Greta Thunberg. Mm. I think she has crystallised uh, a sense uh, of um, impending need for change in a way that so many great communicators and politicians have failed. And uh, for that alone, I would love to spend just 20 minutes with her to understand uh, more about her background and how she's done that. Yeah, and other than showing appreciation, respect for what she's doing, would you give her any word of advice? A lot of people will be concerned for her own uh, future, her own um, her own health in every sense. I wouldn't. I think she's... Um, at the end of the day... I find this in our business. So many people want to give us advice, which is usually, as Olivia hints, to be more like the companies who we're trying to replace. And she's got things right that the entirety of the other 7 billion people have failed to do. I think we should listen to her. Yeah, excellent. So what about a book sits on your shelf that you'd recommend to others? doesn't have to be a business book. Olivia? I am a huge fan of Trick Mirror by Mm. Gia Tolentino. She's a uh, a staff writer for The New Yorker, and this book came out this year, and it's a series of essays kind of focusing on what it's like to be a woman in the modern era and how our relationship with the internet. Excellent. Trick Mirror, we'll link to it. Greg, what's on your shelf? A book called More With Less, which is uh, a biography of a guy called Paul McCready. And Paul McCready was, uh, at age 14, I think, he became a world gliding champion. He was obsessed with efficiency in flight, uh, so, you know, obviously gliders use zero energy and they fly. Uh, but he was the guy that uh, designed the Gossamer Albatross, which was the first pedal-powered aircraft, human-powered aircraft, to cross the channel. And everything about it was on the bounds of what was possible at the time, right on the bounds of physical capability, including he trawled the earth to find a pilot who was fit enough to keep up the pace that was required he found an Olympic athlete, an Olympic cyclist, and then he had to get a lot fitter because just being an Olympic cyclist was not fit enough. And what sort of era was this? I this is in the 1980s. Yeah. And um, the craft, uh, he said the night before the attempt, they were sort of sitting there planning, and he said to the pilot, um, you've got four miles to go, uh, you're running out of energy, you just can't go on, what are you going to do? And the pilot said, I carry on. And I thought... This summed up for me, bringing together the limits of what is possible in every way in human endeavour and achievement. So more with less. We will link to that uh, in the show notes. Now, um, my final question is really turning the clock back, going back to your former self to give yourself a piece of advice. Olivia, what do you say? Is it to the young Bank of America employee, perhaps even earlier than that? What do you say? I think mine would be to not be concerned or scared to reach out to people you want to reach out to. And I've sort of learnt this increasingly as an investor and sort of just being encouraged to reach out to founders that I think are interesting that but that people actually tend to be quite open to mm. requests for contact. What do you think stopped you doing that? Um I think this idea that people wouldn't be interested or that people wanted didn't want to give away time whereas actually people on the whole tend to be quite nice and open in giving with their time so I would encourage myself to reach out to more people. Right, here here I couldn't agree more. Greg what do you say to a young Greg Jackson? I would say hesitate less. If you've got an idea, um, move on it. 
and don't be nervous about fear of failure or um, fear of what other people are going to think if it doesn't work out. Uh, pretty much everything I've done, I could have done sooner. And if I had done, well, would have done more by now. Mm, and on that stepping back, give us a, a real sense of your ambition about where where this can go. Where do you most want Octopus to be? And choose whatever time frame you wish. I think it's a good example. Our original business plan said we'd get to 600,000 customers in the UK by the end of 2021. And we're at 1.3 million uh, during 2019. Uh, and I think um, what I realised was I was letting the fear of failure hold back our ambition. And um, actually, we have a global challenge. The entirety of the global energy system has to change over the next decade and a half. So that creates a global opportunity. Energy is a $2 trillion global sector. So moving away from those very modest targets we had, I suddenly realized, you know, we should be aiming for 100 million customers on our platform. If we get to 50 million, that's great. If we get to 100 million, we'll think about where we go next. But the only way we're going to make a truly massive difference is at that kind of scale. I used to be nervous about saying that because I thought, well, if we don't succeed, you know, then I'll be embarrassed. But I've now realised that that fear of failure was holding us back. Yeah. So I'm out and proud and want to make this the biggest difference we can possibly make. And, of course, as a listener might be thinking, actually expressing something does have a relationship with how it comes into being. And yeah, look, something I'm, to that. If you want people to march up the top of the hill, you probably should point to the top of the hill. And go with them. <laughs> yeah, and go right in front. <laughs> yeah, off you go. Right, <laughs> Olivia, just very briefly, um, our time must come uh, to an end. What quality are you looking for at the Craftery? If you had to boil it down in your next investment, the challenger, entrepreneur, the rebel? I think just determination, true determination and not being, not taking no for an answer. Excellent. Well, on that, from quarterbacks, I did not expect to be talking about underpants in this episode, but that is the way it goes. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed having a conversation with Greg Jackson and Olivia Kramer. Thank you both very much. Thank, Thank you. you both. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitskata, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>